We're going to talk about the genealogy of Jesus. You see it on there. The other thing I, I, I want to say is I want to give credit where credit is due. Some of the things that in the last few years, there's been some great scholarship that has been done on this area and areas like this. And one of them is a book. I have a book. It's called Vindicating the Vixens. It's a book about women of the Bible and how many times they've been misjudged or mischaracterized. And, and it's an excellent work. I can tell you how to get it if you want it. It's kind of a scholarly work, so you know it's not a it's not an easy it's a, it's not an easy read, but it is a good put yourself to sleep read. Okay, just just so you know that. But it has some great research in it. One other thing I want to mention is with port, everything's filled except for we have two slots in one particular thing, and that's staying overnight. You stay from nine to five, I think it is, is the time they ask you to stay. We 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 need a few people for that. The deputy stays with you, and then an official from port stays with you, so you're not on your own. But the idea then is just as people sleep, if people need to get up and get something, you help facilitate that. If they need a drink, if they need something else, if, if, if there's medicine that needs to be taken, the medicine's laid out for, you know, that type of thing. So that, that's it. It's not a huge responsibility. It's just that somebody will be there and be responsible through the evening hours. So we still need two people in port. Now, that's this next uh, weekend, one night, um, and, and, and the details are there. You can pick those up. You can talk to, to Megan. Megan, wait, okay, that Megan is in charge of that. So if you'd like more information, please talk to Megan. But we, we could use two people. We'd really appreciate that. All right? So here we are. We're looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Speaking of things that can put you to sleep, the, the genealogy of Jesus right here, starting with verse 1 from Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to read it. I'm taking a great step of faith. Uh, I mentioned last week, I know whenever I do read a genealogy that there are some people that are hoping I will mispronounce words badly and say something wrong. So here we go. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born of Jesus, who was called the Christ. Thus... <laughs> I never get applauses, hardly ever. And I get one for being able to read. So, thus were the 14 generations in all of Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. 
So he adds that last little bit. It's, it's important. We'll get to that in a bit. So first of all, I mean, I know this is church and all, but those were a lot of names, and those are names that are, are difficult. And, and if, if you're honest, maybe your mind wandered a little bit while I was reading, unless you were fervently hoping, hoping for something. But it makes you wonder. I mean, this is always the thing I kind of come to this, is I can remember when I first become a Christian and, and people were encouraging me to read the Bible and how important it was, and I thought, well, I should do it. You know, and I, so I went to Matthew because it was the first book. I started in the Old Testament, and that, got, that went downhill fast for me as, as a very new believer. So I started in Matthew. So I started reading Matthew, and I'm just like, what the heck? What is going on here? Why is he doing this? Why, why does he start this way? Because, you know, he could have started with it was a dark and stormy night, you know, or he could have started with once upon a time. But he doesn't. He starts with this, he starts with this, this um, genealogy, which shows you this is not a story. This is not how stories start. This is, this is a historical document because he starts, and he starts by documenting something that is historical, that's what's going on here. Because in those days, genealogies were extremely important. And people liked them. And that may seem weird to us, but people loved hearing genealogies. And the, you know, back then, no electricity, uh, no TV, no Netflix, no YouTube, there's nothing. So what did people do at night? I mean, have you ever thought about that? The other day, you know, we, were, we were sitting around and I said, good night, it's already getting dark so early. And what did people do at night in those days when you couldn't work? You know, the animals had been tended to, the fields had been tended to, and everything was settled. What did people do at night? They sat around and they told stories. That was kind of entertainment. And what would happen is oftentimes it would start with a genealogy. Um, there, there's a historian, uh, his name is Ray Vanderland, and he, he spent some time out in the Middle East um, learning about this kind of stuff. And he one point was invited into a Bedouin, a, a tent of a Bedouin in that time, and they served him food, and they served him tea, and then an older man came in and sat down and said, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and started reciting, and started reciting, and started reciting, and went on and on and on, and then he stopped, and one of the kids who was there said, Tell us about grandfather, and he picked one of the names out, how he fought off all those people. Tell us about him. And so this older man would pick out this one name out of this long genealogy, and he'd say, this is what happened. And what was going on there? They were saying, you want to know about us? This is who we are. This is us. These, these are our people. These are my people. So, so when, when, when an older grandfather recited this genealogy, everybody else was saying, these are our people. This is who we belong to. This is who we are a part of. And so there was this oral culture. There wasn't a lot written down. And so genealogies were important. Why? Because they, estab they, made, they established your legal standing. They established your financial standing. They established property rights. All of that's built into a genealogy. And so this was very meaningful to them. This, this, is, this kind of information would be very important to somebody who said, well, tell me about Jesus and about his people. If I'm meeting this man, Jesus, tell me a little bit about his people and what kind of person he is, who he belongs to, and who he is. They say, well, okay, let's start with Abraham because that's very important. And they would just start coming right down, and that's how they do And so what it would do is it would say, I have a sense of dignity. I have a sense of identity. I'm not a nobody. I'm not rootless. Ask me who I am, and I will tell you. I will tell you my people. And so actually, this is a very good way to start a book. 
because it establishes the identity of the Messiah. And that's very important. Now, this is the genealogy of Joseph. And why is this important? Because Joseph really wasn't Jesus' father. It's important because Joseph took Jesus as his son. In a sense, he adopted him. He became his son. And so his legal standing is wrapped up in Joseph's genealogy. If someone had said, give us the genealogy of Mary, no one would have known it. Okay, this isn't a good thing. I'm not saying, it's just that this is the way it was. Nobody kept track of who women descended from. It was through the men because it was that type of society. And so Joseph became the father of Jesus, and that's how they kept track. So actually, this is important for us, and it's important for us. It's going to show us some, some very important things. Now, the only thing I can kind of relate this to in our day is like a resume. If you're looking for a job and you hand in a resume, what you tend to do is you tend to highlight the important stuff and not mention the really bad stuff, all right? Here's, I'll, I'll be vulnerable to you, I'll self-reveal. When I got out of college, I, I started grad school. And I actually was going to two grad schools at that time that were right by each other, a seminary and then the University of Maryland's graduate school. And the, my time at the seminary deteriorated very quickly. I was not a very mature person and I, I struggled with some things and was working through some things in my life. And so ultimately, I, ju I just blew it off. I just stopped showing up at the, the uh, seminary class. Now, then um, God started the maturing process in my life. He brought my wife into my life, which really helped me mature. And, and uh, so then I decided to go back and go to seminary and actually do the job. So I applied to a different seminary. And they, they said, give us your educational you know, background. And I don't know if this is the right thing or the wrong thing, but I just left out that one little bit about blowing off a seminary class and flunking out and being kicked out, okay? I just left that out. I talked about, I talked about college. I talked about going to grad school at the University of Maryland, the grades I got, and, and they accepted me um, uh, barely. Um, they, they informed me of that. They said, you're right on the line, so don't screw up. But I left out the bad stuff. Why? Because, because when you're trying to get something, when you're trying to impress people or do something, you tend not to reveal the bad stuff. And that's the way genealogies are. Genealogies, they often would leave out names. Right? I mean, if you're a descendant, let me just pick, if you're a descendant of Benedict Arnold, you probably are not going around saying, hey, big guy in my background, let me tell you about it. You're probably not saying that, right? Because you, you tend to leave those things out. You highlight the good stuff, you downplay the bad stuff, and that's how genealogies work. But it's interesting in this genealogy that that's not what Matthew did. And, uh, and, and we talked about this some, but I want to dig a little deeper on some of these things. But in ancient Israelite genealogies, there is never women. There are never women's names. It's simply by the men. Because women cannot establish bloodlines. They had no legal standing to do so. So there's no sense to keep track of it. That's the way they thought about that. And so when we start to read this genealogy, it starts like any other genealogy we would ever see, except when you get to verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now he throws this name in, and I want to tell you, 
I'm, I'm sure, you know, maybe Matthew was writing and his wife was with him, helping with some of this. Maybe she was editing or whatever. And when he wrote in Tamar, she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No. Matthew, no. Not Tamar. Let's go somewhere else on that one. And he's like, nope, this is what God wants in here. So this is an interesting story. And if you don't know Tamar's story or you don't remember it, let me just refresh you. You know, we're going to do, do the Reader's Digest version, which I realized as soon as I say that, Reader's Digest version was when they would condense books. Okay, there's a lot of people that don't know that. Okay, so this shows how old I am, all right? Okay, so if you don't remember her story, it's in Genesis 38. You can look it up anytime you want. But Judah was going to choose a son, his wife, a wife for his son, and he went to the Canaanites. He went outside. He went to the Canaanites, the pagans. That was an interesting thing. And he found a Canaanite woman named Tamar. And he married her off to his oldest boy, a boy named Ur. When you name your kid Ur. Just not. So Ur was an immensely wicked person and ultimately, ultimately died, was put to death. But Judah was obligated to make sure that his daughter-in-law Tamar was taken care of properly because she had been taken away from her people and that's how it's supposed to work. The, the Old Testament, the, you know, the, the Torah makes that very clear. And he reneges on his promise, just basically. So he's a covenant breaker. Judah is a covenant breaker with Tamar. And he tells her, go back to your family, which he knows her family is not going to accept her back, more than likely. That's just the way things were in those days. And so she's in a very difficult position. She's a woman. She has no legal rights. She has no idea what she's going to do. So she disguises herself as a cult prostitute, and she waits by the side of the road where she knows her father-in-law Judah will come until he passes by. It's dark, and she's veiled, and he doesn't recognize her. And so he strikes a bargain to sleep with her. He'll give her a sheep, but he doesn't have one with him, but he's going to give her a sheep, and so he gives her his staff and a seal, oftentimes that'd be like a ring or something where they put it in, in wax. He gives her his staff and seal and says, I will send you a sheep as payment, and then give me the staff and shield back, uh, seal back, and, uh, and we'll be square. And he goes home. Now, the question is, what is she doing here? I mean, when you read this, this doesn't, this doesn't look real good. But the answer is this. We know this. She's going after justice. She wants justice. He's being a covenant breaker. He's being unjust with her. So she wants justice. And the only way she can conceive of getting that justice is this plan that she's hatched. And the Bible here is, is incredibly unique. It's incredibly radical in the sense that it portrays things just the way they are. And if you notice here, Tamar uses a sexual double standard that is going on in that society and that Judah is adhering to. And what's the double standard? There's a standard for men and there's a standard for women. The standard for men is, and you notice this with Judah, he can have sex whenever he wants with people, anybody, whoever he wants. And there's no, there's, there's no problem there. She can't. She can't have anything. She's absolutely penniless. She's got nothing to rely on. So she knows that if she dresses up like a temple, a shrine prostitute, 
there's a good chance he'll have sex with her. Now, how does she know that? Her whole strategy is based on the fact that she knows he'll come by this place and that he has a reputation for doing that. That's her whole strategy. Because she knew his character. She knew what kind of person he was, and she could count on that. And so he can do whatever he wants. But the minute she has sex outside of marriage, she's liable to be killed for adultery. Even though her husband has died, she's still under this covenant with his family that he is breaking. And so her cause is just. And we see this throughout the Bible. The Bible is enormously concerned for the welfare of widows. And it can be difficult for us because things aren't the same culturally for us, but it's important what that represents. The Bible is enormously concerned with those people who have not received justice, the marginalized, the alienated. They are, in a sense, very much like the widows of that day, people who have no, no opportunity or no alternatives or no way of making it in this world the way this world is set up. And so a few months later, Judah is told that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant, and he gets all self-righteous and says, she deserves to die. Get her here. And he's very severe in this. So Tamar is brought out, and she carries with her. Well, here it is. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And then she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. So she says, oh, listen, fine, put me to death. Let me, let me, might as well identify who the perpetrator of this is. You know, by the way, do you recognize these? Now, this is something that I think is very interesting as we look at this. Because the word recognize is, is an interesting word in, in, in the Hebrew. And, and, and it's something I, I want us to look into. I, think, I feel like this is, this is um, um, like a Paul Harvey thing where, you know, the rest of the story. The word is hakarnah. Do you recognize these? And the, and the word has this implication, not of just physically recognizing, but saying, do you discern what these are and what they mean? What is the importance of me having these? Do you discern that? Do you see what you have become? And then he says she is more righteous. It doesn't mean she's without sin. It simply means I see now her plea is just. She is more righteous. He says she's deserving of the grace of God. Now, this is a turning point in the life of Judah. This is kind of a side note. This is the rest of the story. Because he suddenly sees his need for the grace of God. He says she is more righteous. I thought I was a right. I'm not a righteous man. She is more righteous than I. In, in everything that she did, she is more righteous than I. Her cause is just. Now, how do we know this is a turning point? And this is that, I feel like, the background that makes this so interesting. In, this is Genesis 38. In Genesis 37, Judah and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. You know that story. Judah was the one who thought of it. He's the one who said, I know how to get rid of him. He'll go to Egypt. We'll never see him or hear from him again. So Judah concocts this plan to send Joseph. Judah, whose mother is the less favored mother. He's the son of Leah, 
the less favored wife, sells Joseph, who's the son of Rachel, the favored one, and he sells, sells him into slavery. That's Genesis 37. Genesis 38, this happens with Tamar. Then the rest of Genesis, the story of Joseph unfolds. And it's very interesting. Because Joseph, you know, comes to power in, is, in, in, in Egypt. Famine comes to Israel. So the, the sons come. And through that whole thing, just basically ends up, he gets, there's only two boys that are sons of Rachel, the favored one. The second boy, Benjamin, comes. Joseph, in a sense, kind of frames him and says, he can't go back to his father. He deserves to die. And there's this incredible verse where Judah says, take me. He says, take me. I forfeit my life for this son. And that's when Joseph knows they've changed. Judah has changed. He's willing to give up his life. Judah was willing to sell Joseph and even have him die. But now he has changed. God's worked in his life through Tamar and other events. And so now he's like, no, I give my life. I will not do that again. I will not sin like that again. And he's willing. He says, I offer my life for him. So he's changed. And so, so here we have this, this incredible story that's in the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, imagine this. These people know this story. Now, some of you grew up in church. And they used to tell Old Testament stories with an ancient thing called a flannel graph. They never told this story, did they? You never got this one in Sunday school. Let's talk about Tamar. Like, nope, 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 nope. We're not talking about Tamar, kids. Yeah, right? But Jesus says, these are my people. This is one of my people. Tamar has a child who is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, that Tamar, she's one of my people. You want to know me? Look at Tamar. So Matthew puts Tamar in Jesus' story. A daughter-in-law who dressed up like a prostitute, who sleeps with her father-in-law, has a child, two children, but the older child, the son, becomes one of the Messiah's ancestors, and he puts it in. That's an amazing thing, to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. She's a Canaanite. She's not a Jew. She's the wrong she, she shouldn't be in a genealogy. She's the wrong sex. She's a Canaanite. She's the wrong ethnicity. Canaanites worship these other gods. She's the wrong religion. She's wrong, wrong, wrong. And Jesus says, she's one of my people. She's part of my line. And so this continues, this list. And it, when we get to ch- verse 5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Another woman in the genealogy. I I can't, it's hard for us to understand how jaw-dropping that would be for any woman to be in a genealogy. It would be like, what are you doing? This is stupid. But Jesus is like, no, these are my people. And so we we get that and we see Rahab. And I I don't have, I've, there's so many interesting stories here, the, the background on all of this. But Rahab didn't act like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. We know that story. She's a Gentile. She's not an Israelite. Wrong ethnicity. Wrong religion. She's a pagan. She lives in Jericho. 
And it's interesting because it says she lived in the wall, at the edge of the wall. Now, we know in ancient cities, when they had a wall protecting a city, the, the richest people lived towards the middle, away from the wall, because the wall's where, where attacks happen. The wall's where people die. So the wall is for the alienated. The wall is for the marginalized. The, the people who live by the wall are the people who are, who are of no consequence. People like a prostitute. And so this is where we see Rahab. And what does Rahab say when she meets the spies? I, I can't go into all of it. She says, when we heard of it, she's talked about what God was doing. Our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, if you know, we've talked about this, but the, one of the things Israelites struggled so much with as they came out of Egypt was this concept that gods are regional gods. And if you go far enough, you get out of the power of one God and you've moved into an area that's the power of another God. That is why in ancient times, armies so many times jockeyed for where to have a battle. They were jockeying for a place where their God had power. So they were always, so sometimes armies would get together and we see this Oh, I'm going too much. This is going to last forever. You, you see this with the story of David and Goliath. They spent so much time not fighting. They were there for weeks not fighting, going back and forth, taunting, and all of that stuff. Why? Because everybody's thinking about, okay, how can we make... And, and all of these things enter in. And what does she say, though? She says, I've, I've noticed something. Your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Your God is the God over all the gods. What has happened here? Rahab has come to, she's, she, you know, if we put it in our parlance, she's, she's gotten saved. She suddenly has recognized who God is and who these people are that are representing him. And so, they made a deal with her. She protected them, and they, they vowed to protect her. And so you have Rahab. Here's another Gentile. You know, wrong ethnicity, wrong sex, wrong religion, wrong occupation. And Jesus says, this is one of my people. And then hard on the heels of that one, in verse 5, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and so now we have the story of Ruth, one of the most beautiful stories in, in the Word of God about a woman who is from a different country. She's a Moabite. And her husband dies, and her mother-in-law, who is Jewish, says, I'm going back. I'm going back to Jude. I'm going back to Israel. You go back, make your way as best you can in your country because you will not be accepted in Israel. And we have this verse, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. She says, she makes this great pronouncement of faith. She says, I understand how I will be looked upon in Israel, but I, I believe in God. I want to worship God. I will follow you everywhere. I will take care of you. I will be with you wherever you go. And so we have this woman, Ruth, who is a Moabite. Now, the Moabites, uh, it's a long story, but basically they're the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. It's a horrible story. And so they were terribly unclean people who, who did some terrible things throughout history. So in Deuteronomy, God said, don't marry someone who is a Moabite. 
Don't marry them because it will put a curse on your family. They will cause evil in your family for 10 generations. And what is God telling you? He's saying, look, stay away from those people. They're bad people. They're evil people. So Ruth goes, and uh, if you know some of the story, there's a man named Boaz, and, and the Bible makes it very clear. Boaz is a righteous man. He is a man who seeks God. And the book of Ruth is about Boaz. If you, if you hear someone tell you that it's about Ruth trying to get Boaz to marry her, they have totally missed the point of the book. The book of Ruth is about Boaz letting Ruth know in a whole bunch of different ways how much he wants to marry her. It's a love story. It's a beautiful love story. It's incredible. But I always used to bother me. Boaz is a righteous man. She's a Moabite. Why does he want to marry her? He's righteous. He knows Deuteronomy. He knows Deuteronomy 23.3. He knows that verse. And it's because, and I've shared this before, some of you know this, but it's because if you look at this genealogy, verse 5, Salmon was the, Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the harlot. Now, she may have been his grandmother. These things aren't hard and fast. But Boaz grew up hearing stories about this God, who is the God of grace, who takes people who don't fit and brings them into his family. And he saw Ruth... And he said, there's someone like my mother. She's got the same background. She doesn't fit. She's marginalized. She's alienated. I will do the righteous thing. I will do the graceful thing and marry her. Because he knew about grace from Rahab. And he knew she needed grace the grace of God. And so he decided he could be the person that could exercise that in her life. And Matthew puts her in a story and Jesus says, she's part of my genealogy. She's my people. So you look at this. These are marginalized people. These are alienated people. And he says, these are part of my, these are the people I love. These are the people I identify with. These are the people I want to spend time with. And finally, um, just real quick, in verse 6, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, we know her name. Her name is Bathsheba, and it's very interesting that Matthew doesn't put her name in. He says whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And I think there's a, this, is, this is something Matthew's doing to make sure everybody understands the whole story. All right? So we know in that story, uh, uh, David is in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong things. And David is tempted when he sees Bathsheba. And he knows, he finds out she's married to one of his right-hand men. She, this is what's good. She's married to one of his best friends, Uriah. Uriah the Hittite. And so she's, and her name kind of shows it, she's a Hittite. Wrong sex, wrong ethnicity, wrong religion. All those things. And so what does David do? Through a, through a whole, he finagles this way of finally getting Uriah killed on purpose in battle so that he can have Bathsheba. He, he takes her beforehand while Uriah is away fighting at the battle that David was supposed to be at, but he decided not to go. And so he takes her. Now, I want to tell you, that there's one other thing I want to correct here real quick, because I, I, I came across in a commentary. One commentary guy said, you know, there's some, there's some blame on both sides here because it takes two to tango. And, and you know what? That's not true if it's rape. 
And the Hebrew actually uses a very forceful word. David sent his men and they took her. So this was not her idea. And she did not approve. And so she gets pregnant through this rape. And so David has to finagle a way to kill, have Uriah get killed, but not make it look like he did it. But he did it. And so here we have this story. This is a sordid story. And, and I think with Matthew, you know, he could have said any number of things about David. This is a genealogy. He's including David, because David has to be in that genealogy. He could have talked about the David who's after, the man after God's own heart. He could have talked about the David who wrote so many of the Psalms. He could have talked about the David who slew Goliath. But he doesn't. He talks about the David who had his best friend murdered because he's gotten his wife pregnant behind his back. Think about this. And Jesus says, that's my family. That's my family. Some of you are going to have Christmas dinner with extended family. And you may be saying, Bob, you don't know my family. Let me tell you something. Jesus is saying to you, you don't know my family. You don't know. You don't have a clue. This is my family. And not only that, he doesn't say like, oh, this is my family. No, he's like, this is my family. I love these people. I love them. I use them. David repented, and God used him. Judah repented, and God used him. God used Rahab. God used Ruth. He used them. They're part of the line of Christ. He used them in so many ways. He says, these are the people I use, the people that everyone else rejects, the people that everyone pushes to the side and marginalizes. And Matthew is kind of saying, this is the record of the people of Jesus Christ. So get ready for a surprise because the people of Jesus Christ, the people he's going to identify with, with his love, the people he's going to let into his kingdom are not going to look like the people we think they should look like. Some of these people are scandalous. It's not going to be real respectable. What is, what is Matthew saying here? These people needed grace. We all need grace. We all need that. And Jesus has come. And now everything's changing. Everyone can get that grace. Everyone can get in. Hittites can get in and Moabites and Canaanites and Jerichoites and Republicanites and Democratites and Newport Newsites and Yorkites and Hamptonites. Everybody. He's saying everyone can get in. He says, I'm going to show my grace to everyone. It's very interesting. I came across a quote from Martin Luther. I just want to read it to you. Martin Luther wrote this. It's as though God intended for people to hear this genealogy and say to themselves, oh, wow. No, he didn't say wow. He just said, oh. Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. Look, he even puts them in his family tree. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? What an incredible thing. And so if you're tempted this morning to think, you know what, I've messed up too much. My sin's too dark. God can't use someone who's done some of the things I've done. Jesus would say, sorry, but I've used worse. I can use you. I can work with you. He used people in spite of their failings. When you get down on yourself for falling short of who you think you should be in Christ, remember that God excels at using people like you, people who fall short. That's what he excels in. Jesus lived this. He became known as a friend of sinners, which was not a compliment. It was a slur in those days. 
And Matthew is tipping us off at the very beginning, at chapter one, he's tipping us off that this rabbi, this rabbi, this rabbi, this Messiah, this Messiah rabbi, he is going to get into a lot of trouble for the people that he makes friends with. And this Messiah will, by, by the grace of God, will end the war between man and God. And show grace to the least of these. And this is, this is the kind of church he wants to create. Somewhere along the line, we got this idea that church was supposed to be so prim and proper. I remember one time when I was growing up, we, we went to church a few times a year, not very often, and it was a pretty um, strict kind of a liturgical church. And, and I remember one time running in real quick. My parents had gotten a little ahead, so I ran in. My mom grabbed me. She said, stop running. And I said, Mom, I'm just, just having a little fun. She goes, no, no fun in church. And I was like, okay, I think I get the read on this one, you know. I think that's how it is. I think that's where a lot, you know, a lot of my problems come from. That's why sometimes when they give me a quarter to put in the offering plate, I'd slip that sucker in my pocket. If they won't let me have fun, why am I giving them money? That's what I figured, okay. We get our kids sometimes running in, and they run with big smiles on their face to, to children's church. And on Wednesday nights, the kids club, and I tell people, where did we get this wrong in so many years? These kids love to come here. Why did, how did we get it wrong for so long? I don't know. But this is, this is the kind of church God wants to create in here. And it strikes at the heart of what Jesus came for as a little child 2,000 years ago. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if you know Jesus, if you've been on the receiving end of his grace, the question is now, will you help Jesus seek the lost? Two of our children, our two boys and their wives are traveling, and um, they're, they're, they're flying, and they both had long layovers at Dulles Airport yesterday. And so one of them called and said, do you guys want to drive up and see us, you know, for like six hours? And it was like, yeah, we're not going to see you for Christmas. We haven't, you know, they live out of state. We don't get to see them that often. Yeah, so we drove up and we spent the day with our two boys and their wives. And it was so fun. I was so excited about that. And I think I got to, it occurred to me when we were driving home, I got so excited to see my two boys. Imagine the heart of God when a human being is headed for eternity apart from him, suddenly turns, repents, and comes home. Imagine the bursting of excitement and love in the heart of God when that happens. And that's why Matthew wrote what he wrote, because it's good news, and it's for anybody. He's got prostitutes on that list, and he's got kings on that list. He says, everybody... Everybody in between. This is my family. These are my people. I want you to be a part of this. I want you to be in my genealogy, in a sense. And so we need to think about that. Where do we stand, firstly? But secondly, who can we reach? And also I think of this, uh, because maybe this is a stressful time of year for you. I know for some people this really is a difficult time. And I want to give you one more thought about this genealogy that you, you may not have ever heard, all right? And, and I, I want you to see verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David. 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 
from the exile to the Messiah. So, 14, 14, 14, which is seven and seven, seven and seven, seven and seven, six sevens. Now, we're Westerners, so what do people do? We're Westerners. What people do is they, they, they get, look at every name, they estimate the average lifespan, and then they tell you, it's been this many years from Abraham to Jesus. That's what Westerners do, right? But this isn't a Western document. This is an Eastern document. So there's much more here than that. This is symbolic. Jesus is the seventh seven. There's six sevens in this passage, and Jesus is the seventh. And that number is an incredible number in the Word of God. In Leviticus, every seventh year, from year seven to year 49, all it was, you had to let the land lay fallow for a year. Let the land rest. Seventh day, God rested. 49th year was the year of Jubilee. All debts forgiven, all slaves freed. The land rests and the people rest. And what is Matthew saying here? He's saying all the sevens in the Bible point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. And they point to the rest that he brings. Hebrews talks about this some too. But no matter who you are, and no matter where you stand, no matter what you do, God says, I have a rest for you. I have a rest for you. You you don't earn it. You don't have to prove it. He gives it. He says, this is what's available. For many of us, we need rest from the troubles of this world, and we're trying. So what we do is we try to control history. We try to make everything so go good for us, to go good for our church, to go good for our kids, to go good for our job. Whatever we stress over, we try to manipulate things. We don't rest in it. We get anxious, and this becomes exhausting. And this is telling us that someday our great Savior, by the power of the Spirit of God, will eventually give us this eternal rest. It will be fulfilled in him because he's the seventh seven. He's the one that ushers in the rest. And that gives rest to us knowing that that's who he is, that that's who I have a relationship, that that that's who is involved in my life and working in my life, even to this moment. The one who brings rest. The one who loves me so much. The one who includes me in his genealogy. And so I would encourage you this Christmas trying to think, who can I reach? Who needs this? And secondly, be thinking in the midst of all this stuff going on and all, all the way our, our, our attention and our heart and our mind can be pulled in so many different directions. I encourage you. He's, Jesus is saying, I give you rest. Come unto me. I will give you rest. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. And that's what he offers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this genealogy, this list of names but a list of names that is so full of incredible stories that we've only scratched the surface. But Lord, we thank you that you include everyone. You include us. Your grace is available to everyone who will receive it by faith. That as we acknowledge that you, your son is, is the Messiah, the son of God, and you bore our sins and rose from the dead, we have access to this rest that is offered Lord, help us to experience it in our lives and give you the glory for it when it happens. In Jesus' name, amen.